As we look at Exodus chapter 3, we've begun a series in Exodus that will take us through the rest of the, uh, this year, looking at how God is presented as mighty to save his people. Uh, he did so for the Israelites in Egypt, and he does so for us today through Christ. And now, this morning, as we look at Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, we will see the deliverance that God reveals to his people. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is the word of the Lord. Dating experts, I am told, though I never listened to them, dating experts generally agree that when a gentleman is preparing the first date, he should choose an activity that expresses something of himself so that the young lady may learn more about who he is, what he's passionate about, what he's interested in, what spending time with him is like. You may be in later dates, he'll cater them around her interests, but to begin with, he should show some of who he is. By that standard, April's impression of me after our first date was probably that I was desperate to impress her and had no idea what I was doing. But the point is that your plan in such a situation shows who you are, or at least it's supposed to. And in our passage this morning, we see a similar pattern that, that God is revealing his plan, in this case, his plan of deliverance. And as that plan is revealed, more importantly, the character and the heart of God is revealed. The plan shows who he is. I mean, we could even wonder, what did Moses know about God at this point? And the answer is probably very little. So when the Lord said, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, there wasn't much more than that to Moses' knowledge. He knew some of those stories passed down. But as God tells Moses what he plans to do and how he intends to do it, Moses begins to see what kind of God this is. He begins to see the character and the person of this God, what he cares about. 
how he operates. And so as the, as the plan of deliverance is revealed, God himself is revealed. And as God has revealed, our ability to trust in his plan of deliverance and salvation is strengthened. Our ability to trust him grows just as he reveals to us salvation in Christ. The more we see how God works, the more we see who he is. And so what did the Lord reveal about himself as he reveals his plan of deliverance to Moses? The first thing I want us to see is that deliverance begins with God's person. Just to bring us up to speed at this point, Israel is in bondage, in slavery, crying out for relief. Moses tries to help, but that doesn't work out, and he ends up fleeing and is a fugitive from justice for 40 years. He started a new life. He's now keeping sheep, and he's married and has children. But God, all along the way, has been aware of the suffering of his people. And as we saw last week, God has continued to be at work. Though not visibly to his people, God has been at work to bring about their deliverance. But now God steps into the story and reveals himself. No longer operating behind the scenes, he's out in the open, at least before Moses. In verses 1 and 2, as Moses is keeping the flock of Jethro, the high priest of Midian, he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And when in Scripture we see the angel of the Lord appearing, it is a way of saying that the Lord Himself is revealing Himself. He is appearing before His people. So as Moses draws near, the Lord speaks to him in verse 4. And this is where we see it's not just an angel, it is the Lord Himself. The Lord sees that Moses turned aside to look, and God calls to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, Here I am. Already, the Lord is revealing who he is through this burning bush. We're going to see three things that the Lord reveals about himself to Moses just through this incident at the burning bush. Three things that set the stage for the deliverance that he is announcing. God shows Moses that he is holy because he punishes sin and Moses can count on him to be just. God shows that he is merciful and so he will protect his people. God shows that he is powerful. And so he will surely do what he has said he will do. He will be able to do all that he says he will do. The first thing to see there is the power, though. The power of God is evident in the bush that burns but is not consumed. That's a supernatural phenomenon. That's not an ordinary thing that happens. Verses 2 and 3, Moses looks, behold, the bush was burning, yet it's not being burned up. It's not consumed. It's not turning to ash. And Moses said, I'm going to check this out. I'm going to turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. God in in that bush is accomplishing something that, that isn't normal and isn't natural. Something that requires a miraculous power over nature. And this is important because in order to deliver his people from Egypt, God would need to demonstrate his tremendous power over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt to demonstrate that he has the ability to do more than what humans can accomplish. He has supernatural power, and he's revealing that in this supernatural act of a bush that is burning but not being burned up. Similarly, as the Gospels recount the stories of Jesus again and again, they draw into focus his supernatural power over the world. 
He can turn water into wine. He can walk on water. He can calm the storms. He can heal broken bodies and even raise the dead. These are things that his people needed to see that he could do if they're going to trust him to deliver in a way that requires supernatural power. So right from the start, we see that he is a powerful God. But then in verse 5, we learn two more important things about the character, the person of God. Verse 5 says, Do not come near. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. We see that God is holy. Moses has to treat his presence as something unique. He can't casually approach God. It's actually dangerous to do so. Just like the author of Hebrews says that God is a consuming fire. We can't take him lightly. His holiness, his justice will consume us if we approach him in sin. So much so that God has to warn him not to just not to even approach, lest he be destroyed or harmed. Because God is holy, he will punish sin. He will, he will bring justice to the oppressors of God's people, as he points out in verse 9. He says, I've heard the cry that's come to me. I've seen the injustice. I've seen the oppression of their oppressors in Egypt. So God is holy. He's revealed He's powerful. He's revealed that He is holy and, and will take sin seriously and will bring justice. And we need to understand that. But the second thing in verse 5 might not be as obvious. It is the warning itself. Do not come near. This is God graciously protecting Moses. Though there is danger from his holiness and his justice, God warns his people, lest they be harmed, lest they be consumed, lest they be destroyed by his justice. So in Scripture, when there are, when there are laws and commandments and the, the ceremonial prohibitions and the sacrifices and all these many layers of approaching God, that is not just God being an introvert who needs a little alone time. This is God knowing that those who carelessly and sinfully approach Him will be consumed and destroyed in their sin. And so they must approach Him in a clean and right way. And so God, to, to protect Moses, warns him. Just as God in the Garden of Eden warned and, and kept Adam and Eve from returning to the garden, lest they eat from the tree of life. That wasn't God saying, I don't want them to live. That was God saying they have, they have fallen into sin. Mankind has now become sinful. If they eat from the tree of life, they will live eternally in their sin. They will forever be separated from the joy and the peace and the beauty of the presence of God. And so in Genesis 3, God prohibits them from returning and gives them no access to the tree of life. It is a, a gracious, merciful act that He does, just as it is with Moses, graciously, mercifully saying, don't come closer. Don't come any closer. Just as, just as we graciously, mercifully, lovingly prohibit children from going to a hot stove or, or the, the city will put up signs warning you against downed power lines, we graciously, mercifully protect those that we love and care about. And so in this brief moment with this burning bush, we see the power of God over the, over the natural order of things that He will use to deliver His people. We see the holiness of God that will stand up and bring justice to oppressors. And we see the mercy of God that will protect and guard and keep His people safe in the midst of deliverance. It's important that Moses and the Israelites and we see this that deliverance begins with the person of God. 
This whole plan is going to be carried out because this is who God is. He is powerful. He is, he is holy. And He is merciful. This is who God is. And salvation flows from that. Salvation is not just something that God does. It, is, it comes from who God is. And this is only a foretaste, a hint of what we see in Jesus Christ. Because on the cross... On another mountain, we saw another encounter where God revealed His holiness and His love. He revealed His holiness by pouring out against sin all of His wrath. And yet that was not on us, it was on Jesus. And so we see the, the holiness and justice of God in punishing that sin, but also the mercy of God in providing a substitute so that we would not be destroyed. We would be spared the holy and righteous wrath of God. And then three days later at the empty tomb, the power of God to defeat death and rescue His people. Our deliverance is not just a, a side project that God is engaged in or a hobby for Him. It is, it is an outflow of His very person and who He is. So as God begins to reveal His plan to deliver His people, and we see that deliverance begins with the, the person of God, we next see that that deliverance follows a distinct path. It follows God's purposes. It, so we have to pay careful attention to how God describes what He's going to do for His people. Because God is not, as we sometimes subconsciously think of Him, He is not like a magical genie who, who will just grant the desires of your heart whatever wishes you have. If you approach Him in the right way, He's just going to give you whatever you want. Instead, God is, is saving us in order to bring us into His story, into His plan to follow His purposes and His design for us. And so deliverance follows God's purposes. We see in verse 8, God says, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land and to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. First, we see that God's saving of his people is not just deliverance from something. More importantly, it's deliverance to something. They're not just going to be brought out of the land of Egypt. They're going to be brought into a land of abundant goodness and blessing. The story of Exodus doesn't end once they cross the Red Sea and leave the borders of Egypt. The Exodus is not really complete until they arrive safely in the land that God has promised them. And that's very important to remember because we're not just talking about the Israelites here. We're looking at the pattern of God's salvation for all people, for all His children. A pattern that plays out for me and for you as well. It is a misunderstanding of the salvation that we have in Jesus to think that God forgives us so that we are then free to live and, and do however we want. No, God's plan for our lives is something so much better than what we could ever plan for ourselves. It's, it's interesting to note as you read through the Exodus story, the, the people of Israel are never asking to leave Egypt. They just want things to be easier for them where they're at. They're just crying out for a release from the oppression. It hasn't entered their minds that, that, that they're going to be taken out of the land of Egypt. They wanted to stay in the life that they had, but just to have that life be easier. And for how many of us do we have a plan 
Do we have a vision? Do we have an intention or a desire of how our life should be and our expectation and desire is that God would enter into our story and just make our life easier where we're at when really God's plan is to remove you from Egypt and to take you to something far better than you asked or imagined. But is God in your mind just a means to accomplishing your ends? Or do you recognize that following him is not about God making your plan work, but about you learning to follow the path that he has for you? I dealt with a question like that in my years before ministry. I, um, I worked in, in the public safety division of my university, and uh, at one point I reached a, a point where I was tasked with creating a new department in the public safety division. And to, to that end, I was given a significant budget to work with. Now, I was not free to simply take those funds and say, I'm going to take a vacation to Cancun. I'm going to, I'm going to buy myself a car. I'm going to pay off some student loans. That's not what that money was for. I was tasked with something. It was given with a purpose. And likewise, for the people of God, salvation is not... You're free, now go do what you want. You know, all the movie versions of Exodus and, and, and the story of Moses is Moses saying, let my people go. But it actually never says it like that. It's, it's usually almost always in Exodus, let my people go that they may serve me. Let my people go that they may worship me. Let my people go for this purpose. Even at the end, I, I, we don't have it on the screen, but at the end of verse 12, he says, this is how you're going to know that I've done this. You're going to get to this mountain. You're going to serve me. That's why I'm carrying out this deliverance. That's why it's even happening. And so for the Christian, it is still true in Ephesians 2, familiar verses about our salvation. By grace, you've been saved. You're delivered. You're free through faith. And, and this is not your own doing. You didn't even have to do this. It's a gift of God. It's freely given to you. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. But why? It's because we're his workmanship. Created for a purpose. Created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God had a destination in mind for you when he delivered you. The salvation of God doesn't lead you into this, the great wide empty plains of the desert where you're, you wander around and decide what to do next. He instead leads you to the lush, healthy life that he has prepared. As Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's not you deciding what you will become. It's you being reshaped into the image of God that he has determined for you. So the first thing we see about the deliverance following the purposes of God is that God has a destination, a plan in mind for you. But the other thing we see in these verses is that it's not an easy road. It's not a simple thing. The new home that God has promised to His people is described in verse 8 as the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Not good people as we read the account of Scripture. They're violent. They're sinful God is actually bringing judgment on them through Israel. They're not, Israelites are not walking into an empty home waiting to be furnished. They're walking into someone else's land and they're going to have to fight for what God has promised them. And in that process, they're going to be feeling the need to question God's plan again and again. They're going to learn that despite the difficulty, 
God can be trusted to keep his promises, even though it's not an easy path. They will have to rely on him to win the battles of their new home. But through that, through the struggle, they will learn to trust and rely on and believe in the God who has made the promise. Because God often requires us to trust him during very hard things in order to be able to praise him, to learn to praise him for the very good things. But the hard things most often come first so that we learn to trust. It's tempting when our lives get difficult, especially when that difficulty comes in the midst of seasons of obedience and trust. It's tempting to think that we've gotten off track and to wonder if if we've wandered outside the plan of God because why would God allow these bad things to happen? Why would He allow our lives to be difficult? After all, doesn't He say in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Those are true. That's great. But everybody, let everyone who quotes that verse that comes from this church, please remember the verse that comes before it. Jeremiah 29.10 For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, then I will visit you and will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you. Okay, the good plan of the Lord that He has follows 70 years of exile in Babylon, of being displaced and homeless and oppressed and persecuted. The promised land follows 40 years in the desert and generations of warfare and struggle. The plans of God are good and perfect, yes, but they are not easy. Indeed, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Children of God, His deliverance follows His purposes. Purposes that lead us to abundant goodness, but also lead us through difficulty and pain. And yet, as we walk that path of difficulty, we find that we are walking in the very footsteps of our Savior, who, as Hebrews 12 reminds us, for the joy that was set before Him, the abundance, the promised land, the good things set before Him, endured the difficulty, the cross scorning its shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In Christ, we see a path of the glory that follows the struggle and we see that in Him we are equipped and enabled to follow that path with Him. The last thing I want us to see about this deliverance of God that He is revealing, it, is, it begins with His person and it follows His purposes, but lastly, it depends on His promises. God's going to do something about their problems. In verse 9, Behold, the cry of the people has come to me. I've seen the oppression. And he's ready to tell Moses what he's going to do about it. In verse 10, here's his plan. Moses, you ready? You want to know? I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God's plan to save His people is to send Moses, the one who tried and failed 40 years ago, fugitive from Egyptian justice, completely different life, has left everything behind. He's an unknown entity. He's hardly the best choice from a human perspective. And Moses knows it too in verse 11. He objects. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And that is a, a fair question. Who is Moses? Who are any of us that we would expect or understand why God would use us to do anything. 
You know, Psalm 8, looking at the heavens, he says, what is man that you're mindful of them? God, you made the heavens. You don't need us to do anything. Or as Simon Peter, when he uh, witnessed the miraculous catch of fish, his response to God was not, hey, let me be a part of this. But in Luke 5, he says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Who am I? I'm not the right man to be associated with you. Or as Paul announces it in 2 Corinthians, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Who is sufficient for such things? Who can honestly say, yeah, I'm the right person for that job? When God wanted to spread the knowledge of Him, He should have thought of me. I'm the right one for the job. No, the more natural and right response is, who can do that? Who is sufficient for these things? Lord, who am I that you would do that? But here's what we see when God chooses to use people like us to do crazy things for Him. We see that God shows His great power and His great love by using us to do His great works. He shows His power and His love when He uses us. First, He shows His love because He includes us in something. Like a parent who, who includes their child in like a home improvement project. Even though it's going to take twice as long and probably be a lot messier. But in love, they include that child. Make, he, God makes us a part of something that we could never do on our own. Because He delights in us and He loves us. But it also shows His power. How mighty He is. Doing miracles through ordinary people. Using Moses to part the Red Sea. Using David to bring down a giant. Using a nameless Samaritan woman to lead her whole town to Christ. So when, after that incident where, where Simon Peter said, no, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. The Lord responds by saying, no, no. In Matthew 4, he's like, I will follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I'm going to make you into something you can't be by yourself. It's His power at work. Or Paul, after saying, who is sufficient for these things, goes on in 2 Corinthians 3 to say, but our sufficiency is from God. He has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. You know, I was doing some, some yard work just the other day, and I, I can't help but notice a lot of my tools have RPE engraved in them. Now you might know that's my initials, but I'm actually RPE 2. My dad was Robert Paul Edenfield, and all the tools I have, almost all the tools I have, were originally his, and I have inherited them. And my sisters have all this furniture that my dad built with those tools. I use those tools and don't have quite the same effect. Okay, I lack the skill that my father had to build pantries and coffee tables and wonderful things. I don't have the skill. Same tools. But the craftsman is different. Likewise, we are the tools. And apart from the skilled hands of God, we are not sufficient to make anything or do anything or succeed in anything. But our sufficiency comes from God. When the skilled craftsman takes up the tool, he does amazing things. So when the Lord calls Moses to do his work and Moses objects because he knows he's insufficient, God points him to something bigger than his ability. Moses will need more than his own experience or education or his determination. Moses will need the promise of God. 
And so in verse 12, when Moses says, I can't do it, God says, but I will be with you. That's the only way this works, Moses, is if I am with you. Moses could only do what he did because God was with him. Moses could only do what God called him to do because deliverance depends on the promise of God, that God will carry it through and fulfill what he has said. And so people of God, to you is given an even more stunning and amazing promise. Because of the salvation that is given in Christ, you have the presence of God with you at all times. When we are doing the things God tells us to do, we are never alone. God promises to be with us, giving us wisdom, giving us strength that we need to obey Him. You don't need a burning bush to tell you. You don't need a fleece on the ground or an angelic visitor to tell you that God is with you because you have the unchanging word of Christ that even Moses did not have. You have something better. The words of John 14, Jesus said to his followers, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Forever. Even the spirit of truth. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. That's not the Lord speaking through a burning bush saying, go do this task and as you do it, I'm going to be with you. This is Jesus saying, the Spirit of God will now be not standing outside, not waiting for you to invite him him in. He is going to be in you and with you and will not leave you or forsake you. So child of God, let this be your confidence your strength, your assurance is the promise on which everything depends, that God is with you. And therefore, you have everything you need to walk the path of his obedience. We already talked about another mountain where the Lord's power, his holiness and his and his mercy were revealed as Christ takes our place on the cross. I want to close with one more mountain. Another mountain that we see at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 28, the 11 disciples, this is after Jesus rose again. This is another mountain, another startling appearance of God. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Leave Leave that screen up there for just a moment. Love that phrase. Okay, you have the disciples witnessing the resurrected body of Jesus that they knew and had seen died, and they're seeing him alive again. And some of them are doubting. Just as Moses, beholding this miraculous burning bush, is saying, yeah, God, that's great, but I don't think you can actually do what you're saying you're going to do through me. Okay, there's, there's worship as Moses is fearful, and yet there is doubt. And then the next verse, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So just as with the bush, the burning bush, God is revealing, expressing his power, his strength, and then he commissions them into mission to be a part of the work of deliverance. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. He's calling them to be a part of the plan, to be messengers of deliverance. And then it ends with the very same promise that was given to Moses. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. People of God, he has revealed his plan. You're right in the middle of it. You're living the plan of deliverance that is Jesus. 
dying for sinners, rising again, sending his followers to proclaim his gospel until he returns to reign forever. The plan reveals the character and the love and the power of the God who is mighty to save. And he wraps the whole thing up in the expression of his power and the promise of his presence. And with those things holding it all together, that plan cannot fail. Let us thank him for that. Let us be bold in that. Let us rejoice in that as we prepare our hearts to sing of the holy, holy, holy God who is yet with us and present graciously even until the day that we cast our crowns around the crystal sea. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you. We worship you as the one who has revealed yourself even as you have revealed your plan. You do not stand afar off wondering how things are going to work out. You've not set these things in motion, just curious how they will look. But this plan of salvation comes from your very heart. It is the natural outworking of who you are as you love us, as Jesus lays down his life for us, as in glory he rises again, and as in power you send us out, promising to be with us always those great things in mind. We praise you and pray that we would not forget, but would live boldly in light of them. In the name of our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, we pray. Amen.